She's found the acceleration. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. Galen Rupp is still the American record holder at 5,000 meters indoors. You know that if you saw our record attempt that we streamed live on Let's Run.com last week. But Paul Chalimo is back with the win, 1309. We'll get into that. Emily Sisson has spanked the competition at the US 15K Championships over the weekend in Jacksonville where nearly 7,000 people Ran a road race in the United States. We've got an interview at the end of the episode with the hottest coach in the NCAA right now, Dilji Taylor, after her team's historic NCAA weekend. BYU won the women's DMR, they won the women's indoor 3K, and they won the women's cross-country title. We talked to her about how she built that program back to greatness. And has Cole Hawker run his last race in a University of Oregon singlet? All that and more... This week on the podcast, I'm joined, as always, by the co-founders of Let's Run.com, my bosses, Robert and Wellen Johnson. Guys, how are you doing? Happy to be here, John. Happy to be here. Not sure if you've heard a somewhat serious car accident on the way back from the American record attempt in Virginia Beach last week. Never slammed into another car at 70 miles an hour before. Would have been, it would have sucked to have gone out, beaten covid but then die when a guy doesn't break the American record. If I go out, John, in a track and field related accident, I'd rather be with you, John, to be honest. Instead of on a lonely highway in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, late at night, I'd rather be with you at the Tokyo Olympics with a terrorist attack. Uh, I don't really, is that a compliment? I don't really know how to respond to that comment. I'm glad that you didn't die on the way back from the Virginia Beach race, Robert. And some context, Robert, you... Hit a, there was rainy conditions on the highway and the car spiraled out into your lane after we think hydroplaning and you hit him. Fortunately, no fatalities or anything like that. Robert made it back okay. But scary moment for one of our co-founders last week. Yeah, Robert. Glad you're here. I thought the biggest thing with the record attempt was the free t-shirts we had to give out. I guarantee the record would fall and I said we'd... Give out t- 10 t-shirts, people who buy t-shirts on shop.letsrun.com. So I gave those out, and then I get a text later the day. Robert's like, been involved in an accident. And he seemed pretty sh- shaken, but glad him and the other guy okay. All the legal eagles out there, the other guy's part has already accepted fault. Not that that really matters if you're not here anymore, but I- I've been with Robert in the car twice possible near-death experiences. One was coming back from, I'm going to say Mount Sac. I'll pretend, Robert, if we, if we were going to go out on a good thing, I'll pretend it's after I won Mount Sac, beating the esteemed Keith Kelly. But we were driving back at 2 in the morning, and I heard the loudest high-pitched shill from a man I think that's ever really possible. I just heard like this highest-pitched voice screaming. I was actually in the... Let's run existed then. I swear I was on my computer. There was no way there's portable Wi-Fi. I just heard this ah! the car jerked. The two there's another guy in the car and he kind of high-fived Robert. And I was like, what the hell happened? And there'd been a huge elk in the middle of the road, and Robert was going like 75 and just swerved around it. The other time there was an 18-wheeler coming perpendicular to the highway. I still don't know what happened there, and that was pre-internet, so nobody knows what happened. But Robert swerved behind that one as well. Jeez, I guess I'm fortunate that I 
haven't been I haven't had anything like this happen to me, so I guess I'm lucky, but I I am interested the Rob Weldon, you mentioned the guarantee of the t shirts. It's funny. I saw this tweet, let's run, we're guaranteeing an American record. If not, we'll give out free t shirts. And I think I asked you, I'm like, have you seen this thing Robert's promising? This just seemed like a Robert move to build up the hype for a race. And then you're like, oh no, uh, actually I did it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like you're pretty confident then. And then turns out the result, we'll talk about the results here of the race. Paul Chalimo beats Emmanuel Bohr 1309.90 to 1311.10. And the record was 1301. They, ne- they weren't really, last time it was close, like 800 to go. We kind of thought when he, Emmanuel Bohr tried this two weeks ago, he might get a shot at it, but he was on pace and he just had to hold on and he couldn't quite hold on. This time they went out a little slower, but they just weren't able to pick it up during those fourth and fifth kilometers when they needed to. But to me, I thought it was a positive sign for Paul Chalimo. And then after the race, he gets the win over Boar, who beat him convincingly a couple weeks ago. And then after the race, he just casually mentions, oh yeah, I might also take the Olympic trials out in 52 seconds for the first lap. So he his confidence seems to be back. I don't know about that, John. I was struck when I was in Virginia Beach. To me, like, I thought a little bit of the opposite talking to him. Actually, on the way, when he was leaving the facility, I was loading up the car. I said, Paul, I don't he, – he, in that post-race interview, he said to me, I'm not the favorite. So when he was leaving the facility, I said, Paul, you keep saying you're not the favorite. Who's the favorite? You've got two medals. No one else has anything in this country in the 5,000. So to me, it bothered me that he wasn't viewing himself as the top dog. But I think he's – that's – he sort of explained to me. He, he did some analogy to understand. He's like, in Kenya, how do you hunt the lion? You put the chicken out. And they go for the chicken and then you jump on them. So I don't know if this is like tactics or what, but t- t- to me, he's definitely been intimidated by the fact that the rest of the world is running these 1230s and 1240s times. I think he thinks I've got the, the these two hardwares. I need to compete with these guys all the time. And I don't, it's kind of like, that's just not in his, that's not something really he seems capable of doing. It's almost like Meb. Meb is a great championship marathoner, but he wasn't capable of going out and running 204 in a marathon. So I think he needs to forget about that and focus on competition. What was impressive to me in this race was, John, when you watch him coming off that final turn, that speed, you see the speed that that kicks to the medals. You see the speed that kicks to the teams. I remember in 2016, he barely made the team by the narrowest of margins. And then a few weeks later, he had an Olympic medal. So 27 last 200. And as I said to Paul, I said, Paul, if you include, if you improve three seconds every two weeks, you'll certainly be making the team. And what, it's less than 100 days, folks. Less than 100 days to the U.S. Olympic. 86 days, I believe, actually, at this point. But, Robert, the medal chances, like, globally, you just look. Here's the problem with Paul Chalimo. He's not as good as he was a couple of years ago. And guys like Salomon Borrega, Joshua Cheptegei, Jacob Kiplimo, they're all significantly better than they were two or three years ago. So you combine those two factors. That's why he's in trouble in terms of getting a global medal. Yeah. And if you factor in the shoes, 1309, if we didn't have to factor in the shoes, we'd be fine. 1309, this type of, this time of the year would be fantastic. But if 1309 really is 1319, then it's not so good. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, but you'd be crazy to, to, to rule him out. Of the team. I think <laughs> you put it close with 200 meters to go. Anyone under 1310 nowadays has got a shot at making the Olympic team. America isn't, hell, even if you're at Kenyon right now, like you probably have a good chance of making the team. So I think, yeah, the shoes work both ways, though. We, don't, we can't just look at the people running well. 
we got to kind of adjust in our head, like, okay, 1309 may not be 1309. But if you go back four years, Paul Chuimo's probably in better shape now than he was heading into the trials. Like, nobody knew who the guy was. He made the team. He beat Eric Jenkins, right, by, like, point – I'm going to say point one two, but I'm making that up. The slimmest of margins to make the 2016 team. And then he goes to Rio and gets a silver medal. So – No, well – but – that's revisionist history, Weldon. At this point in 2016, he had beat a lo- he beat everyone except Ryan Hill in a loaded US 3K indoor final to make the World Indoor team, and I think he was eighth at World Indoors. Like at that point, he had he had announced himself as a contender. I think you could arguably say he was fitter at that point in 2016 than he is right now in 2021, especially if you conclude the shoes. But he had only very recently announced himself. Like, in February 2016, no one really knew, expected him to be an con- Olympic contender. But by March, I think he was on people's radar. Not John Fax getting in the way of my argument. But but somehow between that 3K performance, 8th in the world indoors, whatever, that's not that great. Making the team is probably a better accomplishment. But somehow between there and the trials, he became only the third guy in America. And... I don't know. People aren't thinking Eric Jenkins was getting a medal in Rio. Well, so. he ran the also Polchelimo ran a bad race. He sta- a stupid tactical race at the trials. That's what he was. He shouldn't have finished third. He should have won that race probably. Like look, all credit to Lagarde who ran brilliantly, but like Chalimo went way too hard, way too early, and almost ran his way off the team. That's why he got third. Refresh my memory, John. I think he just, from what I remember, he made he kicked too soon on that last lap and almost ended up getting run down. But I think he was fit enough to win that race, probably, if he had timed his kick better. It was an incredibly close race. First place, 13.35.50. Chalima was third, 13.35.92. And Jenkins misses it by point zero six. Folks, we do have an update. I want to give everyone an update. When we were live streaming, I asked for people to send me $1 each on Venmo to get the high schoolers. The super spikes. Now, apparently one of them already does have the super spikes. I did not know that. Y'all were accu- I, I went back and listened to the broadcast. Y'all were accusing me of putting on a false narrative. The guy that was there both times, the 1020 senior who needs to break 10, does not have them. We got a lot of donations. I ended up giving all of the guys 110 bucks. So they're well on their way to getting the super spikes. I think we should keep get updates. Hopefully they can break 10. But seriously, one guy who gave me – some people give him 25, 30 bucks at a time. But one guy, who Louis Barraza, I think he might be a Let's Run.com supporting club member. If you want to join the Supporters Club, you would have already listened to the deal detailer. We gave that to the Supporters Club members last week. You get Also, you get exclusive content that no one else can read. You get 20% shoe counts. Join up now, Let's Run.com slash subscribe. But Luis Barraza, when he sent me some money, he said, As a poor kid who ran in high school, I can't imagine everyone having super shoes and not these kids. Back then, sure, lots of kids had sweet Nike spikes, but I never felt at a disadvantage in my clearance ASIC spikes. And I think he's 100% right about that. Back then, all the spikes were relatively the same. Now that's not the case. So I'm glad that we could help get these guys some spikes. So thanks for donating. It was fun. A long way to go back. I'm glad there's not going to be another race in two weeks. But um, folks, if you want us to live stream your event, we'd be happy to do it. I'm working on getting a drone for outdoor coverage. So... Email us, pod at letsrun.com, and we can take care of your streaming needs. Guys, should we talk about USATF 15K champs in Jacksonville? This is the first US, I think, outside of the one-mile road champs, which 
took place last year in Des Moines. This is the first U.S. road tramps that we've had during a pandemic. During the pandemic, Emily Sisson wins it uh, on the women's side, forty-eight oh nine. She won pretty comfortably in the end there. Uh, essentially, a solo run. Lindsay Flanagan was second over a minute back in forty-nine fourteen. She also won the equalizer bonus. They started the women six minutes early, and whoever crossed the finish line between the men and the women would get the overall money uh, prize money title and that went to sisson as well so she uh, that was five thousand dollars for the gender battle and then she got ten thousand dollars for winning the women's women's title men's race was won by clayton young 2019 ncaa champion from byu now running for asics in 43 52 that was a closer finish bia simbasa shadrach kipchichi nico montanez were all right behind him within three seconds so to me it's the Takeaway here is Sisson. We already knew she was in pretty good shape. She ran sub-15 uh, a couple weeks ago. I guess it's really not a shock that she, especially when you look at some of the other women in this field, that she won by that much. Does anything stand out to you from these results, guys? I don't know. She, she's just better than everybody else in the field. She's sort of like an A-teamer, and everyone else in the field, uh, well, actually, with one exception we'll probably get to, is an Olympic hopeful, right? If Sifson doesn't make the Olympic team, she's going to be crushed. It would be a, a major disappointment for her, New Balance, everybody involved. Everyone else pretty much in these fields, they're very good U.S. runners, but they're not like Olympic locks or really strong Olympic hopefuls. With the exception of Sally Kipiego, who will be going to the Olympics. She has already made the U.S. Olympic marathon team. And where did she finish? Because... When I first looked at the results, I saw the live thread. I did not watch the race live on USATF.TV, but I saw people talking about Kipiego not going out with her. And I'm like, I'd already seen the top 10 results. I'm like, Kipiego didn't run this race. But I think she was... She was 13th in 5109, which is... Or 5106, sorry. So almost three minutes behind... Emily Sisson. Now, obviously, she's on a slightly different timeline here. She's already made the Olympic team. She's prepping for the Olympic marathon. But still, this isn't a great... Uh, this is not a good race for her. And she said on Instagram later, yesterday's race was tough. The rust is definitely busted and the pipes are wide open. I expect it to be rusty, but not that rusty. So, essentially, she's acknowledging... She she, this is, she talked earlier, a couple weeks ago, she said she, want, she thought if she could get in sub-220 shape by the Olympics, she might be able to medal. That was her goal. She's a long way from that. So she clearly does have some work, but she does have four and a half months or so to close that gap. Let me repeat. She's America's only female Olympic marathon medal. Hopeful. I still think she has a shot. This is obviously way off of what we would have hoped for in this race. But, well, I agree. I agree that the people that were... Finishing second, third, and fourth really aren't the big names in American distance running. There were some NCAA champ- Emma Bates was 12th in 50-42. So there were some other names just not running well. Um, back to system, though, that 10K is going to be super hard to make. I-, I think we debated a few weeks ago who was going to make the Olympic team in the 10,000. And when I was re-listening to the podcast, I, I think I was going to change my picks. I think I might have picked Sisson, John. But then I thought, you know what? It's going to be a Jerry Schumacher coming out party. Or not that he's not he's not well known, but I was like, this could be their vindication. They could sweep all three spots. Emily Enfield, 
Carissa Schweizer, Elise Cranny, Marielle Hall. They could go one through four, really. It's possible. I was really thinking of Enfield, Cranny, and Schweizer. And then Sisson's got to, oh, that's good. That's tough right there. One of those women is not going to make the 10K team. But I mean, Sisson's really good as well. I don't think as good as Jerry's athletes are, I'm not going to, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if I feel pretty close that Schweizer's probably a lock, but she also is definitely better at the 5K than the 10K. So I don't know. But yeah, it's going to be a great race of the trials. I think we've been hyping that one up for a while. Speaking of Jerry's runners on the men's side, well, do you want to do the winner first, John? But like Chris Derrick was in this race. Yeah, I was going to go to the winner, Clayton Young, because to me, this was a shocker. Like, Clayton Young, so he wins the 2019 NCAA 10K title for BYU. An American winning an NCAA distance title, it's not that common of an occurrence. So you obviously think he's someone to watch. Now, granted, he was, you know, 25 years old when he won that race. But still, he, he looked pretty good doing it. And going in, like, I saw a lot of guys in this race, in the entrance, a lot of names I recognized. I, Clayton Young didn't say, like, oh, he, this guy's going to be the winner. Because, look, only a few weeks ago at the Texas qualifier, he ran 14.15 for 5,000 meters. To win this race over the weekend, he ran the equivalent of three 14.37s back to back to back. Last year, in, he ran two 10Ks. He only ran 28.47. Really, his professional career had not been going that great. Until this race, maybe he's just a long distance guy. Maybe he was only he was getting training for this distance specifically, but clearly it worked out for him because he beat some pretty decent guys and and he gets his first U.S. national title, uh, forty three fifty two for fifteen k. Well, well, John, you left some uh, another bad result out for him. He ran two twenty nine at the Olympic marathon trials. So twenty twenty was a disaster for him. Two twenty nine in his marathon debut at the trials. Twenty eight forty seven in ten k. Twenty eight forty seven another ten k. Then a fourteen oh four five thousand what I see. Then he runs fourteen fifteen this year and now this is a big result for him. So that was nice to see. One thing that strikes me about these results, John, on the men's side is just the depth in men's distance running is just the top women are so much better than the than than, than like the tenth place women as compared to the men. And here within one minute of the winner, you, there's fifteen men. In the women's race, was anyone within one minute of the winner? Yeah, but you could also argue that the very like Emily Sisson is one of the very top women in the country. I guess Shadrach Kipchirchia, who is third, is he's a twenty-seven zero guy in the ten k. So I guess you could say he is very. But there isn't something I'm trying to think. Who would you be? Who would be like our top ten k? I guess Kipchirchia is probably among them. Our top ten k athletes right now. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a lot closer. You have what t- the top ten rule within twenty seconds. So yeah, that's the case. Men's running generally is deeper than women's running. Most men, people are not going to like to hear this. A lot of men's sports are deeper than women's sports. Do you guys know a number two seed has never beaten a number fifteen seed in the women's tournament? Like that's happened. you think you mean the other way around? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, fifteen seed has never beaten a number two seed, and it almost happened a couple of days ago, but it hasn't happened. But I, I, I think you're seeing that. You're seeing a lot more. Depths slowly starting to come in women's sports. Women just historically haven't had the opportunities of men to compete. Well, it, that also, I feel like that's another cherry pick stat, though, because didn't a 16 beat a 1 before 16 beat a 1 in the men's tournament? I'm pretty sure that happened. Didn't no, Harvard that did beat happen. Stanford or something? Harvard beat Stanford, and that always shocked me, John, because it, normally they're just blowouts. It doesn't make any sense in that. Apparently, Harvard really shouldn't have been a 16 that year. But like in the women's thing, they see them based also somewhat on like how far they have to travel. Oh, wait, Harvard was playing Stanford. I don't know. 
Anyways. Great. Now I've not only been exposed as ignorant, but also sexist, because I didn't know that Harvard had beaten Stanford. I just saw the stat that I was watching the game or saw some ESPN clips saying 15 had never beaten it, too. Okay, one other thing about this Gate River run is the seventh placer on, on the women's side was former uh, Big 12 3000 champion Maggie Montoyo. She was seventh place in 5025, which was a personal best for her. And then, did you guys see this? This this horrific Colorado shooting. She was she works as a pharmacy tech. She was in the building during the shooting, hid in a closet for hours on end. Her boyfriend was actually watching a live stream on his phone and texting her what was going on because they could. There was some like citizen journalist who was filming the whole thing. Like she was wondering when the police were going to show up. She showed up on Anderson Cooper and was very traumatic. Talked about seeing her walking out of the out of the. Um, we'll put a clip to this in the show notes. Walking out of the facility and seeing her dead coworkers. So I'm glad she's okay, but what a horrific experience for her. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's kind of sad in that I feel like there is a portion of the country that's sort of desensitized to these mass shootings in the United States because they happen with such scary regularity. But when it's someone I've, I don't know Maggie Montoya personally, but certainly I've watched her race several occasions and to see. It really—I don't know—it just hits home that it really could happen to anyone. It's—it's it's very scary for the Boulder community. Um, yeah, I'm just—I'm glad she's okay, and I'm—I'm I'm sorry to those who who lost their lives in this in this tragedy. Yeah, I'm glad she's wasn't harmed, but it's got to be super traumatic. And even when it first started happening, I just saw shooting in Boulder, and that sort of makes it a little more you're like, oh, running, like the running community is being attacked because Boulder's. If Flagstaff's the home of U.S. running right now, Boulder is the, the grandfather or the historic home of U.S. running. So just tragic, terrible. Ugh, I can't imagine being a part of that, but glad she's all right. And also during COVID, like there was an article in Runner's World on her because I was Googling about her and she was working all these hours. It's talking kind of height of COVID. Like pharmacies were one of the few things open. So she was a first responder there but glad she's doing okay robert do you want to mention there was one other we talked about one oregon track club athlete you know having a bad race on the women's side i think there's another oregon track club olympian who had a bad race on the men's side in jacksonville hassan mead he was only 27th overall he ran 45 59 this comes on the heels of a couple weeks ago he ran a half marathon in 66 minutes in Las Vegas, this guy, he's a, he's a stud, you know, he's, he's an Olympic finalist. He's, he's run 1302. He made the world's team in 2019. This is not a good race for him. I know it's a little longer than he's used to running, but it's not 27th place. He wasn't even in the top 20 results in the race results weekly article. It's pretty shocking. I, I think that 738, 1302, last time he made the Olympics, I think this is a guy we certainly would have thought. And actually, Gonna bring me. I'm gonna bring this up. A couple years ago, we thought this guy was definitely gonna be on the 2020 Olympic team. Now it's looking like a real long shot. Um, one thing when I, when I after I noticed these results, I did realize he hasn't broken 1310 since 2016. He's 31, but that's not really that old. But it's pretty surprising, John. And there are other guys like this. And I've had you do the research on Monday. I was like, wait, who didn't? Who hasn't run? It? You know, he hasn't been running well. So he's been running. At least we've seen these results. But unless you're scrolling really far down, you might not notice it. But there's been some other Americans that haven't run at all indoors, like Jenny Simpson, Shelby Houlihan, 
etc. I've had Jonathan reach out to their agents and coaches. That article is going to be published later today for the VIP subscribers to see, are they injured? Are they hurt? Because the Olympic trials are coming up less than 90 days away. And John, it was, it, we were talking about this off air this morning and you found an article. I think we should go back to this from 2018. John and I made our, we wrote, we wrote, we wrote an article on who's going to make the Olympic men's and women's teams for the United States of America. And the article is, is pretty fascinating now because I don't know. I guess, John, we were off on some big ways in a few events. I think we can explain it, though. We were expecting the Olympics to be held in 2020, not 2021. Clearly, whatever. But Yeah, perfect excuse there, Robert. I think we can we get clemency for any mistakes here because if these trials have been held in 2020, clearly all of our picks would have been 100% correct. But that extra year, so much to account for. Just We, we can't be held responsible for these selections. And we're going to look to this in the sh- link to this in the show notes. But, okay, men's 800, lock, Clayton Murphy. We both said he was a lock. Okay, now I still think he's got a really good shot at making the Olympic team. I wouldn't call him up. Well, did he run it? What's he been doing, John, recently? Would you still say he's a lock? Certainly not. There are two locks, and he's not one of them uh, in this event. But my other picks... But who who are the two locks? Brazier and Hoppel. One yeah, four at the okay. Lost World Championships. I think that's pretty... I don't think that's too... Yeah, John's other two picks were Isaiah Harris and College Guy X. So I guess College Guy X... College Guy X is Hoppel, so I'm taking Hoppel. credit for that. But none of my picks were Donovan Brazier. And I'm like, wait a minute. This was summer of 2018. How is this possible? Like, here's, I guess here's what I was thinking was he bombed out of the trials in 2016. 2017, he won USA's, but he didn't make the world championship final. And then 2018 indoors, he looked really good, but then he didn't make the world championship final indoors. He got DQ'd, but I think he also wouldn't have made it anyway. He, he didn't run a great tactical race. But I guess... J- I was blinded maybe just by his tactics. He is having some tactical issues, even though he was like 20 years old and just ignored his massive talent because some of, this is a terrible mistake leaving him off. John, I, now you didn't say that your superior boss did mention my other picks were Isaiah Harris and Donovan Brazier. I did mention him, but before I pat myself on the back too much, I'm reading what I wrote. I said, Murphy is a total lock, all caps. And then I put, I'm also very confident in saying that if your name isn't Drew Wendell, Isaiah Harris, Donovan Brazier, Boris Berrien, then you might as well quit training right now or find a new country to run for. What talent? Has the U.S. ever been so deep at 800? So all of that part about being so deep stands, except the only problem was I didn't have um, uh, Bryce Hopple. In fairness to John, this article is great. He says, I'm a little turn over the third spot. Donovan Brazier, the 2017 U.S. champ, seems the obvious pick based on talent. And it weren't for Murphy, I'd feel more comfortable picking him. But Brazier races differently when he's not clearly the best guy in the field. Well, <laughs> the problem is, Brazier now is so good. Like, he's the best guy in any field he's in. So, John, that, that actually may still be true. But now his talent sort of caught up. And any field he's in, he's, he's the best guy in the field. But Robert was sort of talking about the talent at 800. It's crazy. Drew Wendell got a world indoor silver in what, 2018? Like, it's totally fallen off the planet. Boris Berrien was the 2016 World Indoor Champion. These guys are just complete afterthoughts now. And one guy, I want to, I just want to mention his name, put everyone, put it on his ra- everyone's radar, Devin Dixon, 
Texas A&M. He's run 144. He was the runner-up behind Hopple at NCAAs in 2019. He, I don't think he had indoor eligibility, but he didn't compete, but I'm expecting him to run outdoors. He's very talented. I don't think it would be a total shock to see him. Maybe he's college guy. Why? And he joins Hopple on that team. But right now, I think, Robert, if we had to pick, it would be Hopple and Brazier and then everyone else. Murphy, I'm not counting Murphy out, but I just don't think he's a lock anymore. Yeah, I'm just like again, we'll link to this in the show notes. I'm just looking at this. the reason why I brought it up is because we had Hassan Mead. We didn't have any locks for the men's ten thousand, but our picks for the ten thousand, Mead, Kip to your church, we both had him. And then I had Lunar Career and you had Tyler Day. To me, that event is still wide open. We don't have I wouldn't say any of those three people are strong picks. Mead isn't running well. Kip Chuchur didn't have a great indoor season. Lenny Career, not so much either. I feel pretty confident Lopez Lamont will be on the team. By, and Kip Chiachir, he's been he's pretty reliable in making these teams. He didn't run amazing at the Gate River Run, but he didn't run. Yeah, you know, he was in the top four. He was all right. And then you got Grant Fisher's got the standard now. Woody Kincaid's got the standard. Tyler Day, I think, has some work to do, but I think he's still a pretty good 10K guy. I, yeah, I think that's that event is pretty wide open though. You know, looking at our women's picks, we had Emily Enfield as a lock for the ten thousand, which I guess made sense since she had won a medal the year before, or I guess. Well, a few years before. Robert, can I go to the marathon what? picks? So we said no, we, we didn't pick any locks for the women's marathon. And this one we can't really, you won't have any excuses because the marathon trials did take a place on time. Other picks, Molly Huddle, Jordan Nassay, Amy Cragg. We both were consensus on that. None of them made the team. And then here's Robert's, what he typed in this, uh, the blurb. If USATF needs to save money, I think this is one event where we can really help them out. Let only the following five people into the trials. Shalane Flanagan, Des Linden, Amy Cragg, Jordan Nassay, Molly Huddle. I don't actually believe that USATF should do that and crush every underdog's dream, but three of those five women will make the team. And I'll admit, I agreed with Robert on that, and guess what? None of them made the team. I may have to stop in to stop this segment of the podcast. Being upper management at Let's Run.com, this is terrible for the brand. I'm reading the 1500 picks. This is terrible. I... I stepped away too far from editorial. I'm letting you guys write just complete trash. Wow, you guys are just exposing yourself left and right here. I'm more looking here at the 1500. You guys said a lock, Matthew Centrowitz. He's, he's looking probably pretty good for the team. John's other picks, Drew Hunter? Drew Hunter at 1500? When has Drew Hunter ever been a 1500 meter runner? I can't believe you thought that, but. Okay. Uh, yeah, he only ran 357 in high school, well then. In high school. That was back in 2016. He's not a miler. Well, I guess I, fair enough. I am the guy on the record who said Matthew Centris wasn't a miler when he was in college, so I may be wrong. Drew Hunter ran three thirty six in twenty seventeen when he was nineteen years old. He ran three thirty five in twenty eighteen when he was twenty years old. That, that's pretty good, I would say. Okay, and enough. Robbie Andrews and Robert Dominic were Robert's two other picks. I'm glad I didn't participate in this article. I'll just say that much. I'm not because I wish you had made picks because we can make fun of you. This is great. You just say, "Oh, look at these two idiots who they picked," and then we don't. There's nothing to hold you accountable for. We didn't talk about the prediction contest last week. Oh, the one that I won. Oh, well, I guess I I didn't win. There was a four person Ivy League group or the fans of the Heps Conference. Four people, which was us three, <laughs> and, and we one other guy, <laughs> and the other guy won it. The other guy beat us all, right? The three people. Yes, the three people who are paid to cover the sport. This is our job, is just to watch the sport, make picks, and talk about it. 
and not three three of us and one random guy and the random guy beats us all that's just it's kind of hilarious if it wasn't so embarrassing. shout out to joe racine okay guys let's make ourselves look a little bit better than since we've been bashing ourselves here I probably should have led. We didn't even mention this in the intro. I'm not sure if I was aware of it. I've been surfing the internet as I've been recording the podcast. On this very podcast in the past, I ripped the Ethiopians for scheduling in a marathon trials. Like originally it was going to be one month out. Now I realize, no, more details have come out. They are basically not quite, they're not doing it perfectly, but they're coming to the close to the Rojo method of picking the Olympic team. Galen Rupp, your medal chances are over. The Ethiopians are doing it right. This is just up on the front page today, this morning. There will be only Ethiopian marathon trials. They're not going to run a full marathon. They're going to run a 35K. What did I say? The best way to pick the team is to run a 30K. 35 is even better, actually. 35K is close to the date of the trials of the Olympics as you can. Now, this is going to be early on May 2nd. I wish it was in June, like their track trials is going to be. But this is, I, I think this is reasonable, John. They've got, well, May 2nd is only six weeks from now. I don't know. They, originally, I thought this was the dumbest idea to denounce this trials. They need to be in shape. If they could just push put it about three weeks later, this would be almost the Rojo plan. So these people in Ethiopia must be listening to the podcast. I I don't know if that's true, Robert, though. There's been so much information and misinformation about this race. I'm trying to write something on it this week, hopefully. I, from the people I've told who have agents and people who have athletes running, they st- they seem to think it's a, still a full marathon. They, they, I was like, is it full marathon or 30K? They said, no, full, full, oh, sorry, full marathon or 35K. They told me it's a full marathon. And this whole process has been, I think they've totally botched it. Essentially, they had their whole team, I think, eight months out from the Olympics. They decided we're going to put, put them all in a training camp, all of our distance prospects. That way they'll have access to training. They will be sort of quarantined a little bit. They, they wanted to make it easy for them. And then they picked it down. They initially had like 10 people who were going to be on the marathon team. And then they whittled it down to like six or something. And then they whittled it down to four. And then the athletes are like, wait, this isn't a fair way to pick the marathon team. Like many of us haven't had the opportunity to race or to show fitness. This is kind of ridiculous. Like we need a different way. So then they're like, okay, we'll have a trials race. Except they announced the trials race is going to be like a month from, they announced this like a couple of weeks ago. They're like, all right, we'll have it in April 4th in Ethiopia and everyone's like well, we need more than a month to prepare so now they're having this race in May I just think and that's that's 14 weeks until the Olympics I think it's enough to recover from but to me if you're going to do this you need to say in November we're going to have a trials race this is how we're picking the team get in shape for that and then the top three will be going to the Olympics you don't say in March we're having a trials race in May yep. oh I don't care what you were prepping for I don't care if you were injured I don't care what your timeline is you need to be in this race and finish in the top three that's a ludicrous way to pick the team and that's how they're doing it uh, I agree I ripped it as the dumbest thing ever but it's getting closer to what I envisioned it's now so originally it was for April now it's for May 2nd I agree it's six weeks from now that's still not enough and I knew have known about it for two or three weeks if, if they move this to June though John and made it like I would drop it down to 30K. I think it would be perfect. Everyone's got enough time because they're they're in a tough spot because people haven't been running marathons. So how do they pick the team? Unless it's just going to be favoritism. So I think some sort of trial race would be perfect. I don't think you want to run a full marathon because it's hard to recover from that. I know a full marathon is obviously a lot different than a 30K. So I think a 30K, what they ought to do is move it the 30K 
to June, I, I'm not really sure holding in Hangola where it's cold is, is the right thing because I would do it in a hot weather place. They're going to run their track trials in Hangola, which doesn't make much sense to me. I, again, I would run it in a hot weather place. But <laughs> I don't know. Originally, I thought it was totally stupid. Now I'm like, it's sort of stupid. But if they would move it back one month, it would be the Rojo plan of perfection and Galen Rupp would have no shot at an Olympic medal. Yeah, still don't know if I buy that. But the one thing we need to talk about the athlete who this affects all the top Ethiopian athletes. And there are obviously a lot like Shur Qatar does the London marathon champion. Obviously there are a lot of good Ethiopians, but the one guy I'm fascinated about is Kenny Sabakele. Okay. He's 38 years old. He turns 39 in June. This will almost certainly be his final Olympics. If he is selected, remember he didn't get picked in 2016, then comes out wins Berlin, almost breaks the world record a month later. And this will be his final shot. At an Olympics, obviously he's won three goals on the track. He's never run the Olympic marathon, and he dropped it. He didn't even start in London last year due to injury. So the last marathon we have for Bekele was in 2019 when he ran that incredible 201.41 to win in Berlin. And what I've heard is not every athlete is really on board with this trials concept. Some of them are like, "Oh, we just want to pick based off of so what we've done in the past." If you have a strong resume you're going to be more inclined to say, oh yeah, I don't want to... And maybe if you don't think you're in shape for this trials race in May, you might say, oh, pick me based on what I've done in the past. I don't know if that's exactly the case for Bekele, but sort of the impression I'm getting is that he may not be a huge fan of this trials race, but the issue is if the Federation says, okay, we're picking the top three of this trials, he might show up and he's not totally ready or he doesn't show up because we know his, his fitness has been... Uh, I would say a little, I guess, capricious would be the word. He, he, we never quite know when it's going to come and go. Obviously, when he's in shape, he's still a very, very special athlete. But I'm just kind of worried, like, if this is how Bekele misses out on the Olympics because either he's not ready for this trials or he wasn't, he wasn't, didn't know about it too far in advance. It's kind of a bummer. I just, that's why I wish we had it in November and we say, okay, if Bekele's ready for it. He gets a spot and he, that's fine. If he doesn't get a spot, well, at least he was prepared and p- could put everything into it. It's just a bummer because I'd like to see him at the Olympics if possible, but uh, it's it's kind of a mess. As a fan, I want Bekele in the Olympics. There's just no way around it. It'd be pretty epic if right. he could do something at this Olympics because he was overlooked in 2016. It's kind of crazy. He still his last marathon, what, 2019, you said? 201.41? And that's nuts. But if they didn't pick him in 2016, I figured they may not pick him this team this time anyway. It gives him a chance, but I yeah, I just don't see him as the guy who's like, oh, short notice Olympic trials, 35k. Yeah, that's the team he makes. I, yeah. I don't know if he would have been picked anyway, but I see him best like, hey, there's an Olympics train for it, and he. I think he would say, I'm ready to go or I'm not. He could pull out and let the alternate run. Like I think that would be a better scenario for him, but. You got to play with the cards you're dealt. So who knows? And, and this trials race, Robert's in Switzerland. The, and the track trials are going to be a month later in, in Hingolo. So I don't know if the, the month difference is so people could try to double. If they didn't make the marathon team, you could come back for the track trials. Not a lot of time there. It's just sort of interesting. And it's not cheap to fly people from Ethiopia to Netherlands or Switzerland. Think about it like... In America, we take it for granted, sort of the like American dream. Our system's very fair. Anyone's got a shot if they want to show up. And I don't think people would have put like what well, a lot of the U.S. team on the team, but like Jake Riley, people wouldn't have penciled him on the Olympic team. 
you're that up-and-comer in Ethiopia, maybe your agent will foot the bill for you to fly to Europe and stuff. But the next level guy, forget it. They probably won't even be in this race. Well, no, here's the thing. The fields are going to be that It's basically like, I think it's 10 men and nine women. And it's based on the Federation has selected it, I think based on recent performance. And I think from what I've heard, well, then one of the factors was cost. Like they don't want to be flying out. You could easily have 40 athletes or 50 athletes in a marathon trials race. Size is not the issue, but I don't think they, the Federation will want to be putting up the money to fly all these athletes out when you can already get a really good field of 10 or nine athletes. But yeah, I agree. Like to me, I think the best race possible would you get everyone who can race. If someone wants to fly out on their own dime and compete in this trials race, I think they should be able to. All right, guys, before we get to the DLG Taylor interview, which is fantastic. I think we should turn back to NCA track on the men's side. In 10, 20 years from now, what will be people be talking about from this meet? One very well may be Diljeet Taylor winning her first NCA titles as a coach, both in track and in cross country. I think she's going to be a prominent coach at NCA for probably the rest of her career. And two, Cole Hawker, incredible double. This double will never be forgotten probably by track and field aficionados. 353 mile, 53 last lap at age 19, and then coming back an hour later to win the 3,000. And I've been thinking about Cole since last week's podcast. I actually got a phone call last week from somebody in the sport, pretty prominent person as I was driving down to Virginia Beach. And we were talking about Cole. I said, did you watch NCAAs? They said, yes. I said, what do you thought? And he said, that's got to be his last race in the University of Oregon, England. I said, what? I said, no, man, I, he's got to run college. He's doing so well. I, I wouldn't change a thing. He's like, do you realize how much money is on the line if he doesn't replicate this at NCAAs? If he's not as good at NCAA outdoors, he slips up, doesn't win. He's like, his money will never be higher than it is right now. What if he wins the trials? Wouldn't it be higher? Like, what if he wins the 1500 at the trials? Okay, so run the table. I'm just saying, like, you're saying he could medal at the... You are the person who, a week ago, said this man could medal at the Olympic Games this year. Right, Robert? You believe that? If you believe that, you think he could win USA's, and if he wins the trials, his value's going to be higher, right? Yeah, but you pay people on potential, so we know that's his potential. If he wins the trials, you're probably paying... Still, It might be a little bit higher, but there's a lot of risk. You think he's still going to... Your college kid's still going to be running well and six... And, how many months? Three months? I don't think it's that outrageous to say someone who's super, super fit right now will still be super, super fit three months from now. I don't think that's a crazy road to go down. And I, I'm the one that's always encouraging the college kids to stay. And to me, it's weird. Let, let me give people a life lesson if you're young. I always say money's not important, particularly when you're young. If you don't have a family, it's really not important. It's just, as Chris Lear once said to me, Robert was running with the Buffaloes. Robert, do you remember when we were 25 and all we cared was about having rent paid and running fat, trying to run fast? It was great without responsibilities. But I always say money's not important until you don't have it. And then when you don't have it, it's very important. And when you have a kid and stuff like that, the, the, the potential, this guy was saying to me, he's like, the amount of money that's going to be on the table for him right now is astronomical. And then they were suggesting, a number was thrown out as to, do you realize how much money Drew Hunter was given from Adidas? Everyone knows it's a 10-year deal. This person said the amount of money was closer to $5 million than $2 million. 
which seemed crazy to me. But then I think about it. If you make $400,000 a year, which is like Jenny Simpson, some of these people do make that, right? With no with no, with no uh, reduction causes, 10 years, that would be $4 million. The, I remember the Hunter, I never heard specifics on the Hunter deal, but what I do remember is it was like such a large amount of money that it would have been stupid for him not to take it. And that fits the bill. Yeah, I was thinking like 10, 10, 2 million, but, but here's the, here's the, here's the problem. If I'm him, I want to stick with the coach, Ben Thomas. He's running so well. Yeah, you have to. You have to through the trials, no doubt. Well, then guess what? Then you're lowballed immediately because this insider thought, he's like, there's no way in hell he can sign with any company but Nike. If he, The moment he signs with an Adidas, the moment he signs with a Reebok, the moment he signs with a Hoka, New Balance, whoever it is, Nike says, you're not practicing on our track and you're not being coached by Ben Thomas anymore. Does Nike control Ben Thomas? Like, come on. He's a college coach. Isn't he allowed to coach his ex-athletes? Like, come on. Or does he have some sort of private service contract with Nike? But I don't think that – I think there's ways around that. There's coaches who coach their ex-athletes, right? Yeah, but some of these some of these schools do have sort of personal services contracts with specific brands. I wouldn't be surprised if the distance coach – at Oregon has something like that. And I do believe, I think he's still involved in Neil Gawley's training, but Neil Gawley, Neil Gawley is a, is a Nike athlete. Am I wrong on that? Wasn't Jeremy Warner Adidas and Clyde Hart when Baylor were Nike? Like there's lots of instances of coaches coaching people who don't represent their school's shoe brand. Not necessarily on Phil Knight's track. Yeah. Not everyone like, okay, there are instances of it, but, this isn't necessarily one of them. Like there are also instances I know in the past where there have been athletes who want to work with a certain college coach and they're prevented to doing so for this very reason, because one school was Adidas and the athlete was a Nike. Do you guys think the Oregon coaches have like side deals with Nike? That would be interesting to know. Andy Powell did. I'm pretty sure. I bet Vin, I bet did. It's interesting, right? There was an article, I think in the wall street journal about the Nike the Nike track, I'm calling it. Phil Knight's track at Oregon. I can't wait to see that thing. Knock on wood. Hopefully we get to see that thing this year. Um, and talking about the cost, I think it was estimating $270 million to build it. But Phil Knight builds it all privately and then donates it to the university. So the actual money spent, it's just a way to get around some of the regulations. Phil Knight's smart, so... Oregon track is his baby. He could, he's, if anyone's going to have side deals with the coaches, it would be Phil doing it. So who knows? Shout out. We got to get Phil Knight on the podcast somehow. These guys are getting up there in age. We need Phil Knight. We need some of these other guys. Gags. We got to get gags on like for perpetuity. It's my understanding that Matthew Centrowitz wanted to be coached by Andy Powell, but that wasn't allowed because Powell was an Adidas coach. So I don't know if it was Adidas saying no or Nike saying no a couple years ago. Before he joined the Bowerman Dry Club. So, anyways, if you're Cole, you probably get less from Nike, but that's what Nike always generally offers less, is what I'm understanding. And they say, hey, you want to be coached by Jerry Schumacher? We're going to give you this. We're going to give you good money, but not as high. So, again, on the upside, it may be as high, but there's probably more reduction causes. So, what, what if they say it's going to run through the next Olympics, probably at least? The next Olympics is only three years. So, what if they say, we'll give you 21, 22, 23, we'll give you through 2020, we'll give you a million dollars. Through 2024. If you make the Olympic team, we'll give you $500,000 a year. Would you take that? So you're guaranteed one, you could maybe make two, but you have a, a 10-year, $4 million deal with somebody else. It's a lot for a 19-year-old to think about. 
if I'm him, I think I wouldn't take it. Sorry, go ahead. I, th- I think if I'm him, I think the money's going to be there. He's the talent's not going away. He's not. It's not like football. He's likely to break an ankle or whatever, break you know, blow out his knee or something. I stick with what I have. I get through outdoors. He's having fun. Don't worry about the money. Don't think about it. And yeah, it's risky, but again, this guy's going to be making more money than he's imagining than he ever imagined probably six months ago. It's very soon. So whether he's making $200,000 a year, 500, even I've heard up three quarters of a million dollars a year. Yeah. It's some of those are three times as much as the others, but I guess it's a good problem to have. But again, it's kind of like when you in high school, everybody runs because they love it. Then in college, the coach gives them a half ride and they're happy, but then they realize someone who's worse than them is getting a full ride and they want more money. The money can complicate things, John. Yeah, but Robert, I agree with you. You should like go through the outdoor season and then you can make your call then on what you want to do. But people like this performance is still going to be there for people to look at. They're not like I don't care if he run if he gets like seventh in NCAA outdoors. They're going to still say, look at what this guy did in March of 2021, and he ran 353 and 7:46 and that closing speed. You can't just fake 25 second lost laps. They're still going to he's still going to get paid off that potential, even if he runs poorly outdoors. It might be a little less, but people are still going to be. Well, he may have more info on the super shoes. He gets smoked by Nagoose. People are going to want to give the money to Nagoose. I don't know. I still think he'll have some pretty healthy offers this summer, no matter what happens. So here's the question. Will he run for Oregon? Yes. If he was son, your son or daughter, you'd have him run for Oregon again. I'd need to know the off- I'd need to know the offers on the table, but my, I'd say, look, it's your choice, but I would suggest that you run this outdoor season. I, I think or- one of the biggest mistakes of higher education, really the athletic departments of the last 20 years has been, they've been trying to teach kids that the point of life is to maximize your your revenue. And that's not the point of life. These schools should be ashamed of themselves switching conferences. Texas doesn't play Texas A&M in football anymore because of money grievances. It's embarrassing. The point of life is not to make as much money as possible. So I, if it was my son, I would definitely tell him to go back in college. If it's my daughter and they're 19, I'd be a little bit worried that they, they, they could still mature. It would depend on their body types, I think, to be honest. But I'd probably still encourage them as well. To go back for one semester or for the f- full four years? Well, ideally, I-, I think this. You're passing up. Th- if you go back for the full four years, you're passing up three of your main earning years, I think. Oh, yeah. He doesn't need to run the full four years. I'm talking this season. They got to go pro. Yeah. He's got to go pro. No, this is what I would want. He's loving college. If I was him, the ideal setup to me is uh, even if he was going to make five or $600,000 or Under Armour, someone's going to give him $750,000. I would take – I would take – $300,000 a year with huge incentive, huge bonuses if he makes medals and stuff like that to double and triple it or whatever, like the average you know contract. Uh, if I was him, I would take five years, $300,000. I get to stay at Oregon. I get to go to Oregon. I get to train with the Oregon track and field team 24-7. Nothing changes. I'm on the Oregon team, except I just don't run in the NCAA meets. Uh, stick in the, train with, with Tier and all these other dudes. Train with Ben Thomas, etc. if he wants to do that. Now, he may want to go Schumacher or something else, but who knows. The guy's not going to give up. If he's going to go pro, he's not going to give up half the money. No, not going to happen. But you mentioned Yair de Goose, And on last week's podcast, we were talking about Notre Dame. And I said, like, oh, you think Yair de Goose would have beaten these guys at NCAs not wearing super shoes because Notre Dame is sponsored by Under Armour. And huge fan of the podcast, Ian sent me a picture. 
And it's a picture of Notre Dame at cross country wearing super spikes. And it's a picture of guys in a orange spike. And Ethan's claims it's a dragonfly with a Nike logo painted over. So Notre Dame athletes are allowed to wear in super shoes or they are doing it. Or we just got them in a lot of trouble, but <laughs> that was not the attempt. My apologies to Notre Dame if Under Armour didn't know this. But hey, Under Armour, you actually will get a lot of the goodwill if you let this happen. Any shoe company that lets this happen shows that they put their athletes first. So that's my message to every shoe company without a, without a super shoe. One, would you like to have someone in the Olympics or not? Think about that. I think generally the answer is yes, so then you let them wear the super shoe. But if you want to be watching the Olympics like me, John, and Robert from home, go ahead. Don't let them wear Yeah, but you want them in the Olympics, but then at the Olympics, they're wearing Nike singlet and they're wearing Nike shoes. But they're your athlete. You brand about their story. They're, you're loyal to them. They're wearing the Nike singlet anyway. It says Team USA anyway, so who cares? Most people aren't actually staring at the shoe that they're wearing. They can paint over the logo. It's about the story and the, the brand affinity that they have because the average guy going out or girl buying running shoes isn't buying a super shoe. We got we, we need to go buy the super shoes ourselves. I was talking to another coach recently who tried on the marathon shoes. They said it literally felt like pogo sticks. And this coach said that um, – well, I don't want to reveal more because it might be obvious who it is. Okay, guys, I think we need to move on here. There's a topic we – We've barely covered this on the home. I don't think it's been on the homepage yet, but Dick Hoyt, the Boston Marathon legend, all around running legend, really uh, famous for pushing his son, Rick in thousands, literally thousands of races. They've done over 1100 total events, including 257 triathlons, 72 marathons, 97 half marathons, 219 10Ks, tons of different races. This is from teamhoyt.com. The stats here. He died at the age of 80. And we were looking at some of his numbers and times and just trying to process how ridiculous some of these results are. So the story, if you're not familiar with it, at age 36, Dick's son, Rick, who has cerebral palsy, asked him to run a race. And he ended up pushing Rick in the race. And Rick really enjoyed it, said it made him feel alive because he can't run with his disability. And so... Dick continues to do this and they do it at the Boston Marathon, like tons of different races all through the years. And Dick's times, they're, they're remarkable. So he ran at the 1982 Marine Corps Marathon. At age 42, he ran 245.23 for the marathon. Now that's pretty that's pretty solid for a 42-year-old. Then you got to factor in he was pushing his son the whole way. He doesn't get to move his arms. His arms are locked in, pushing his son in a wheelchair. And Johnny wasn't a runner until he was 36 years old. This is crazy. But uh, we're about to step in it, John. This could be the most controversial segment in the history of the podcast. I'm not, I'm not even going well, there. No, I'm, I'm going to go that because I, I found out that number. And I'm like, wow, 245 at age 42, pushing your son. That's, uh, inc- that's remarkable. This is such an amazing uh, time. I'll right? go there because I'm like, no, Johnny ran 240. Yeah, and so I look it up on Team Hoyt. I looked at the New York Times obituary had this number in the the Team Hoyt website had this, that his PR was not 245. It was, according to them, 240.47 from the 1992 Marine Corps Marathon. So that's 607 pace per mile. This was at age 52 while pushing his son. 
he ran 240. And I was trying to think, I'm like, is that even possible? Is that a typo? Like, how can this make sense? And a part of me is like, well, okay, he did, if he only took up running seriously at 36, I can see that sort of he's a late bloomer and that he continues building his endurance. But that time still makes no sense. Like 240, 47 at age 52 is pretty crazy for for anyone, let alone someone pushing a wheelchair with their son in it the whole way. So I guess I'm just curious, does anyone know anything, any of our listeners, if more about the 1992 Marine so, Corps Marathon, how this time is possible, how it was achieved? I just want to see like a results page. I want to see, I'm just really fascinated by this performance. I want to know if anyone knows more about it. I'll, I'll interrupt. You guys are beating around the bush. We're not trying to say, I just think it was a mistake. I was reading the Washington Post article on his death and it said, According to Dick Hoyt, even the Washington Post, which normally publishes the Marine Corps Marathon results, said, according to TeamHoyt.com or whatever the website is, that's what he ran. I think it's a mistake. People say, why don't we just look up the results? Well, if you go to the Marine Corps website, the results only go from 1993 on. So the, the 1992 results, we've been unable to find them. I guess I will email the Marine Corps people to see if we can find them. The conspiracy grows. I saw that. I was posting the forums. I'm like, 24852? That's... No wheelchair, not. That's an amazing time. But then I started thinking about it, John. If you're a late bloomer, let's say you ran 245 in Boston, right? Boston's hilly. It's probably way easier to push my daughter. I can't imagine pushing her up a hill. The downhill is way easy with a chair. But like, so Marine Corps is flat. But I started thinking when he died, like, what could he have run on a flat course? Because... I don't know. Regardless of 245 or 240 at age 52, for a guy who didn't run, those are just astounding times. And he's not—he's never known for the times, right? He's known for the story and the inspiration he gave so many people with his son. And we're not trying to diminish that. It's just one of the great running stories. His death made today's show. I, I saw it everywhere. And... But I, somehow it hasn't made the homepage of Let's Run because it's not a normal sources. We've got to get that up. We talked about it Monday. I'm like, we didn't have this up anywhere. But this is Let's Run. So, of course, we're like, wait, did this really happen? Like, where? Wow, this even deserves more. If It it deserves even more coverage. Yeah, don't, don't misunderstand us. We think this guy is amazing. We think he's inspiring. His times that we know that he did because the results are there are amazing. We just think we saw this one. We think this one seems a little too good to be true. So if you know the details, email yeah. the show pod at let's run.com. I know. I hate to be, I don't like being the asshole here because obviously, like you guys said, he is a legend. And now I, I was so inspired by him. There's a great story from Gary Smith in sports illustrated 2011. You need to read it. If you haven't heard the story about team Hoyt, it's fantastic, but let's link yeah. to that in the show notes as well. We got to go though. Guys, Jonathan has an important date, not a, Romantic date, but a date with the barber. Yeah, even even bold people sometimes still need haircuts, Robert. It's funny. I told, I said I had a haircut. Well, actually, the all right. I don't know if I do. I go out on a limb here and tell you the reason I'm getting a haircut is because I have a date this oh. evening. Yeah, I probably should. So maybe that I get more. Uh... All right. That's John's what people very, like to hear. Yes, John was very very worried. He said we've got to finish recording at twelve thirty, and I and I was having some technical difficulties. It's, they get very mad every week. I have microphone problems. And I said, why? Is I got to get my hair cut. So then I I glanced through the video to try to look at the screen. I went full screen to see if there was. There is some hair that's still left there. But now I know, John. Thanks for the full confession. It's going to upset some listeners, John, that 
Wish they were going on the date with you, but... This is what people want, John. So is, is COVID over? And VIP subscribers, we will have an update on the date for you tonight. No, we won't. <laughs> no, we won't. Uh, that's all I'm going to tell you. There, It's a date with a girl. So, yeah. Well, good luck, John. The Dilji Taylor interview is up next. It's great. It's a really cool story. She's an Indian-American woman coaching in Provo, Utah, known for being generally very white and Mormon, which she's neither of. And she loves it there. It's been totally accepted. And she's building a winning culture. She talks about the culture of winning, the coaching, the X's and O's. But like her success is not just about X's and O's. And also the influence of the legendary coach Gags, who pretty much she feels was put on this planet to inspire her to coach, and she's going to inspire another generation. Yeah, and I think actually a lot of the interview is relevant to the Cole Hawker dis- discussion because she had an opportunity to leave and probably make more money, but she didn't do it because she loves the situation she's in. So Cole, don't go pro yet. Okay, we are very happy now to be joined on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast by BYU Associate Director of Cross Country and Track and Field, Diljeet Taylor. She's coming off one of the most impressive weekends ever for an NCAA coach. On Friday, the NCAA Indoor Track and Field Championships in Fayetteville, Arkansas, her BYU women won the distance medley relay. On Saturday, her athlete Courtney Wayman won the NCAA 3000 meter title. And then on Monday in Stillwater, Oklahoma, a women's cross country team scored 96 points to win the 2020 NCAA cross country title, moving up one spot on the podium from their runner up finish in 2019. Diljeet Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's interesting. We have our staff call on Monday and we were sort of talking like, oh, what do we do? Should we get what guests we should, should we get? And I think we all agreed that you would be a great person to talk to about this crazy weekend that everyone's been through following the sport at the NCAA level. And But Robert Johnson, our co-host who is not here, he wants to take credit. He said, look, I'm the one who came up with this idea. I'm the only one qualified to answer the questions because he was a former coach at Cornell. He's a little, little, little pompous from time to time on this podcast. I don't think he'd mind me saying, but then he's like, "Oh, I think it's probably best I'm not on here because talking to someone like you." He compared you to Malcolm Gladwell. He said, "Talking to an icon like you or Malcolm Gladwell, what good can come of it? He will only go down in your estimation." From I don't know if you have any opinions on Robert right now, but he wanted to be on this podcast and and couldn't, so he he gets the credit, I guess, for this idea. Well, uh, we'll see how this goes. I've. I'm I'm 50-50 on Let's Run. So message board, not so much. News, info, and all of that. It's great. But, you know, as coaches, we we have to limit the outside noise that we let in. Yeah. All right. I'll t- I'll take that as a compliment since I'm usually I'm involved in the news uh editorial side rather than the message board. You know, that's not quite my forte. But I guess I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, can you just tell me like what was your timeline? Because you got two championship meets in the last you know, in the last week, when did you get to Fayetteville? When did you travel to Stillwater? What's it, what's the timeline been for you this last week? So we left for Fayetteville on Wednesday and we did the COVID testing. See COVID kind of put a little hitch in all of the travel because you had to go and quarantine and then test and then wait for your test. The tracks were not open for us to do anything at the indoor, so all of my women had not been on a 200 meter bank track. 
Uh, and I tried to put that out of my mind as we were preparing for the races. But yeah, we arrived on Wednesday and then had all day Thursday to just do pre-race and kind of get mentally ready. And then I spent Friday and Saturday in Fayetteville, spent the night Saturday night. I thought about maybe driving right after the 3K straight to, because as soon as that was over, I was ready for, okay, I need to get to Stillwater to get my, my women's team ready. They, they flew out on Friday with our trainer. I met with them on Sunday morning. That is not a very pretty drive. There is nothing in between that three hour drive that you can even look at to keep you awake, let alone any lights. So it was smart. Our trainer actually, that was with us in Fayetteville, Drove while I passed out in the back seat. I woke up and it was 9 a.m. and I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, reunited with my cross country team and very excited uh, to see them and, and spend time with them prior to them getting on the line on Monday. Yeah, I mean, this has been covered uh, a few times at this point, but the most amazing part of this whole thing is you had two entirely different squads. I mean, you look at the runner up NC State, a lot of their women in the cross country meet had also doubled back from NCAA indoors. And obviously, you know, that's, that's an impressive feat in itself Two championships in a short period of time, but you had one squad entirely of track runners this season and one squad entirely of cross country runners. And both of them ended up bringing home national titles. I mean, that to me, it's, it's pretty crazy, but what was it like managing those two squads? We were pretty fortunate going into the season that we had eligibility because of COVID. It just set it up one where some just had indoor eligibility and a few just had outdoor eligibility. And I made the decision early on as a coach that I wasn't going to put the pressure on any individual to try to do both emotionally. And so we separated the team in early January and the preparation looked like it would for a normal indoor season for the women running indoor and like a normal cross country season for the women running cross country. And we kept it very separate. None of the teams trained together. Actually, because of COVID, we wanted to, keep a bubble where we were only exposing ourselves to those that we were training with. And so I actually had them not do really anything together, which was a little different on our team because we are pretty united and they feed off each other in training and even in recovery runs. And so we did meet for a couple times, but not for running all of us. And I think that probably was the best move because mentally it gave both of those teams the right mental space to kind of prepare for what was what was the goal? And, and the goal was to be the best version of ourselves in indoor and the best version of ourselves in cross country. And I was proud that I was able to do it with two separate crews. I think that that shows the depth of, of what we've got here with BYU women's distance. And you're only able to do that if you have depth and eligibility playing into your favor. And, and, you know, this pandemic happened five years in, so timing had a lot to do with it. If this was three years ago, I would not be fortunate enough to have to field two separate teams that would be this strong. So timing, eligibility, uh, and just the idea of let me make these two separate teams because I have women that are running cross country that, that were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 365 days ago. And this was hard for them. It was hard for them to focus on cross country when they lost something a year ago. And I, I needed to separate them from that. So part of the decision was just, let me really be clear with what your focus is and let me be really clear with what, this team's focus is. And, and I think that helped guide us throughout the last couple months to just keep our head in the right place. 
yeah, one of those athletes, Whitney Orton, she was, you know, one of your top scorers at the cross meet, but it's interesting. She was sort of primed to do that same double that Courtney Wayman did this year with winning the three K and winning the DMR as the anchor. She was sort of like, it, it's kind of crazy. I looked at the results. I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Courtney Wayman, like when I was looking at the entries, basically she was the top seed, you know, she had the top fastest time in the mile and the three K the country. She essentially just took on the Whitney Orton role. And then you have Whitney Orton coming back and cross country. I just found that kind of interesting that, you know, you would, you, this could have been like the second year in a row, you guys pulled off this three K DMR double. If we have that meet in 2020. Yeah. The irony, the irony and who did what was, was there was just irony there. And, and the women who went and ran the DMR and got points, even in the mile and the, just the 800s, all of that were different women than what we had in cross country. And then the cross country team was some of those indoor women who were hoping to win a title last year, didn't get the chance to, and then they went and won a title, you know, and they were different women the, than the women who were second last year. So it, it, there was a lot of irony in it, but I think it shows, it shows some resilience uh, with these women that they were able to grieve properly what they lost or what they weren't able to, you know, be able to close the chapter in, in the season that they either didn't get to do or maybe didn't get the goal that they wanted to and, and be happy for their teammates being able to do it. And, and we talk about it a lot in this program, a win for one is a win for all. And that that's something that it's taken four or five years to, to integrate into our culture here at BYU of, of really being happy for other people's success. It's something that's that you have to try to do. And, and even at my age, I try to practice that a lot so the women can see that. And, and that's what we did this year. We had indoor women that were really happy for cross-country women and cross-country women that were really happy for indoor women. And there weren't jealousies that existed between the two teams. It was more just let's motivate and propel each other to be the best that we can. And I, I really think what we did on Friday and Saturday helped those women on Monday. You know, they, they got to witness their teammates, their sisters doing something incredible. And, and they, instead of, being sad that it wasn't them, they thought, okay, now let's do our part. It's time for us to show up and, and give our best. And so I, I, I was proud of the performances. I'm proud of the people that they become through those performances, but I'm, I'm the most proud of how happy they've been for each other. And, and for those of us coaches, that's, that's something that we have to navigate and teach in our programs. That is not something that comes natural. When you're competitive, you want to be better than everyone. And sometimes it's hard to uh, not compare, but I'm really happy with, with where our program is and, and how happy we can be for each other. It's, it's going to make for good things in the future. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you have become known for is you write handwritten notes to your athletes before every, every athlete before every race. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. For so my entire, for a very long time, I've been doing that. And I've seen, like, I think it was Runner's World. They had an article where they were talking about this. And actually, they had a picture of a bunch of the ones you've written Whitney Orton through the years. These are not just like you're writing, you know, just something just in pen. There's there's pictures. There is, you know, it, it's very decorative. Like, it must have taken a long time. And this, you had a double season. You had indoor races and you had cross-country races, sometimes on the same weekend. How long does it take you to write all of this? Like, how much? And how many do you think you wrote for this whole season? Oh, I cannot keep track because it is overwhelming, but it was, that was probably the hardest thing is 
we have a ton of traditions here at, at BYU within our women's distance program. And I'm a big believer in tradition and keeping things consistent. And so it was really important for me these last two months to make sure that everything we do in a normal cross country season, we did for these women and everything we do for the indoor women, we do for the indoor women, but it, it was a lot. And, and some of the note cards are, they start out at the beginning of the season, just being pretty plain. And, and the message is always authentic. And, and I take a lot of time to do that. But then as the season progresses and you get into the conference championship or especially the NCAA, those ones are bedazzled with all kinds of things. And, and I'm not a crafty person at all, but, but I like things to look nice. And so I try to do my best to make sure that it's, it's all part of their student athlete experience. And, and when you hear, I have athletes that I coached at Stanislaus a decade ago that will send me pictures of a box with a ton of cards that I wrote to them. And so I think it's meaningful. It's part of who we are and I will not change it. I will be writing cards for the rest of my life for every athlete before every race, because it's kind of become tradition now. Yeah. So the NCAA cross country, like those women, how long did it take you to sort of write those seven cards? So I wrote nine because we took two alternates and I, I did those. I decorated them probably the week and a half before. So like 10 days before. And then every day I just wrote in a few of them. So just a couple weeks. It, yeah, I did indoor and cross country together and just that's what I did. Yeah. And you said you've been doing this. I mean, you were the coach at Cal State Stanislaus D2 school, which is where you ran as an undergrad before you got to BYU, when did this tradition start and why? So when I was an athlete in high school, I had a section track meet that I had qualified for. And my high school coach, who was a PE teacher, but was just coaching, didn't know a ton about running, but knew how to be the best cheerleader. And she knew how to just pump us up. And before sections, I remember she wrote me a an individualized card, which I still have. And I read that before the meet and it was just super uplifting to, to read, even though your coach can tell you all these things, but just to have it in writing, this person actually believes in you. And it was very uplifting. It made an impression on me when I got into coaching many years later, I started doing it in the very early years of my coaching. So I I would imagine that in my first year at Stanislaus, I started this tradition and it, I've been coaching for a long time now. I was nine years at Stanislaus and this is year five at BYU. So it's been over a decade of, of writing note cards. And I think it might just be my signature of, of what coach Taylor does for her athletes at this point. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in your origins in the sport because I was reading, I think the flow track story on you and you, you're the daughter of Indian immigrants. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So and this was, it sounded like it was a fairly conservative household that you grew up. I'm curious, like, how did you get into running? Were your parents supportive of your career at all about getting, you know, you getting interested in the sport? My parents were very supportive in my early years. I, my dad is a big believer in all of the things that sports teach. And so we were on the soccer team, we played basketball and running just happened to be the thing that I was really good at that shifted after high school. I I think there is kind of a vision of what Indian women do when they turn 18 and running around in, in shorts. And that's just not part of our culture. It's, it's becoming more norm now, but that wasn't, that wasn't an opportunity that I was going to be applauded for. And so that 
that kind of created a rift between my parents and myself as I entered college. But at the end of it, I am a little stubborn and I really wanted to run at the collegiate level. And so I, I took that path by myself. It wasn't a very supported path in the beginning. And now my parents are very proud, but there is, there is just an idea culturally of, of what Indian women should pursue. And it is mostly your studies and not sports. So I went against the grain and definitely not a conventional path for someone like me, but it was a passion of mine. And I'm so glad that I pursued it because it has brought me to this place where I'm at today. And I think that this is the most rewarding place I could be with my career path, but also just, it's not even a career path. It's, it's my calling in life. And I, I would have never been able to do that had I not stepped out and taken this path by myself. Was there a moment where you said they're more supportive of you now? Was there a moment that changed things or what made them come around? It's kind of hard to talk about just because I want to be super respectful of my parents who I don't blame them. This is what they knew culturally. You know, my dad came when he was in high school from India and my mom and him had an arranged marriage. So she came to the country at 18. And in this is what, you know, you do, you parent the best you can with, with the tools that you were given. And this is what they were expected to do as parents, but they didn't really get to watch me run in college and I think my senior year, I was a three-time All-American for Cal State Stanislaus. And I think at the conclusion of that year, they realized that even though the cultural expectation could be different, they were seeing what running was bringing into my life. And I think they were able to appreciate and respect that. So as I, after that year, I went on, which was a little comical. I had an opportunity to go run for the Nike farm team with coach Gags and it that also is not what you do is just pack up your bags and your savings account and go like chase this running dream. But I think during that time after the, the senior year at at Cal state Stanislaus, I think they thought they could see how much joy running was bringing to my life and they, they were okay with it. Yeah. So you were, yeah, you were the runner up indoors, the D2 championships in 2002. And I think, was trying to track down your personal best. Two hundred seven was the best I could find in eight hundred. Is is that is that right? Yeah, I ran two hundred six with gags. Like, but in college, I can't even remember. I think I ran two hundred seven at indoor nationals. Maybe it was, and that you know, twenty years ago, that was kind of fast. It's really not that fast anymore. Especially like my runners are running so fast. Like everybody's running two hundred seven on my entire you know milers and. 800. It's just kind of like, but yeah, I wasn't, I was never the best on the team with gags. And I I don't even think that that was the reason why I ended up there. I I really feel like I was placed in his life so that I could be placed in the, in the lives of the people that I've been placed in since him. And, and that I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that. And those three years with gags, I, I learned a lot and it shaped me for, for this entire, you know, career that I've, I've gotten to pursue. And he, he was the one that saw this coach in me long before I saw it in myself. And to this day, I'm very loyal and very grateful to him. He texts me after every race. He actually texted me after the ESPN interview and told me that I shouldn't be wearing that. And they don't look very good. So that was, that's gags. He gives you a compliment, but then he's also very real with you, but 
in his defense, I did have my hat on backwards because the wind was blowing like crazy and it wasn't staying on my head, but it's like, you didn't look very good. Next time look more professional, but, but yeah, I, I had a great entry. It was not, it was not the typical stepping stone into the world of coaching, but I wouldn't trade it because how I grew as a person. And even with my parents, not being wholeheartedly supportive and, and into this, it really left me on my own to, to see how much passion I really had for this sport. And, and I think without that, I don't know that I would have had the connection that, that I have now had with it because it was, it was for me to figure out on my own. And I'm really just grateful for, for all of those times they've shaped me into who I am now. And I can relate to, to women that come into my office that, that maybe feel like, they should be doing one thing or another, or they're feeling pressures from certain points. And I'm able to relate back to my own experience and, and talk to them. And also I can sit across from them and look them in the eye and, and tell them the importance of chasing your dream. And I can only do that because I'm living mine. And it's so much more authentic for me to give that advice because I, I pursued and am living my passion. And I think that it helps me show them that they can also live theirs. Well, yeah, that's, that's, I'm getting inspired right now here in that, but I'm curious, like you, you mentioned sort of the influence gags had on you. And I think Weldon dug up a tweet from 2017 where you said, I, he is the reason I coach hashtag love gags. So I'm curious, like what specific effects did he have on you? Like, what did you learn from him during your stint from training under him for three years? So I, I did learn a lot of the X's and O's of coaching. I don't want to discount the genius that he is with the sport. I mean, I really think he's the godfather of, of track and field in, in so many ways. I, I have so much respect for his intelligence and how he learned about the sport coming from a football background to really mastering how to write workouts and the importance of strength work. So I, I don't want to discount that, but, but it, was, it was bigger than that. It was how he taught me to care about people. And, and he did that by taking me under his wing and my teammates. And, you know, there was 30 plus of us on his team, but he made every person feel like they mattered. And regardless of where you were performing, whether you were going to be, you know, just trying to qualify for the Olympic trials, or if you were actually had a goal to be an Olympian, he treated us the same and, and we were people to him, not performances. And I think, I think that was so influential in my life to have that relationship of, of someone who actually really cared about you and him and Robbie took us into their lives and we would be in their apartments and we would, I just, one of my teammates from, you know, we, we took a, she took a picture and sent it into us on a group chat. Just, we were at the swimming pool with Robbie. I mean, she's, you know, 60 something years old and we're spending time at the pool with, with Gags's wife. And it, it just became a family. And I try to do that same thing here at BYU where my family has embraced my role here with these women and my family has embraced these women into our home and into our lives. And they're, they're a big part of what we do and who we are. And, and I learned that from gags. I, I learned the importance of, like, I talk about the art of coaching and that's something that I think is, is sometimes overlooked, especially when we get to the level where we are at now, where we're dealing with high level of talent and, you can sometimes forget the importance of these meaningful connections and meaningful relationships. And, and that ultimately is what coaching is, is, is creating meaningful connections with your athletes, but also teaching them 
how to have meaningful connections in their life outside of sport, because this lasts for a very short time of our lives. I'm lucky I get to do this year after year. And when the, when the next crop of freshmen come in, I get to do it all over with that next group. But, but once you leave as an athlete, you enter the real world. And, and if you've learned, if you've had PRs and all Americans and national titles, that's great. I mean, though, trust me, I'm competitive and I, I want athletes to leave with all of those. But if you leave with something more than that, the ability to go have meaningful connections, to go empower other people, to be able to look at your daughter in the future in the eye and encourage her to chase her dreams, whatever they may be. If you leave with that type of power, we, we're just better communities. We're better people. And, and I, I think the goal is bigger than just building fast runners. And that is what Gags has taught me. And I don't know if he knew that that's what he was teaching me, but the team that I, the teammates that I have that when we talk about him, we all get very emotional because he was that special to us. And I'm super grateful, super, super grateful to him. I would not be doing what I'm doing without Frank Gagliano. Well, I see that same sort of connection with you and your run as it seems like they, you know, they're always full of praise for how close you guys are and how close you are to them. And I'm curious, you know, BYU, that is like, there's a specific type of culture around BYU, not maybe doesn't exist in a lot of other schools, just with the, the connection to Mormonism and LDS faith. And I'm curious, like you are not, you're not LDS, right? Correct. Correct. But your, your husband is, or is, is that, I'm what's, sorry, I read that somewhere. I'm not totally sure. He grew up in the church. So I'm very familiar with it. And I understand the culture. My in-laws are very active in the church. Me growing up as a Sikh in the Sikh faith, we had a lot of the same values and standards and and culturally expectations for, for women were, were very similar. So I can relate to the culture here and I understand it. It's not foreign to me because I also lived it. Mm. Do you like, cause there are some things like caffeine, alcohol is sort of is forbidden. Do you abide by those morals as well? I do. Is that tough or is that just like, uh, it's- yeah, which I think it's okay. I'll, I can joke and say like on a weekend, like what I just had, there could have been some need for some of that, but no, I, I love what we stand for here at BYU. I, I stand by it. I think it creates an environment for, for people to be disciplined and for people to be successful in this sport and in life and all of those, I have to buy into it and, and not because I don't have a choice or because I signed a paper, but I have to buy into it because that was the same thing I was preaching at Stanislaus. And so really to be successful and to try to reach the pinnacle of your, to perfect your craft, to perfect your craft, you have to have standards and these standards align well with the BYU standards. So it, it is not, it is what makes us special. And it's also what makes us great. Yeah. I'm curious about, you know, when, you know, it seems certainly on the men's side, I don't think I followed the recruiting quite as much on the women's side, but with, it seems like if you're an LDS athlete in Utah, like that BYU is kind of automatically like the top school you look at and i'm curious like what do you view as the advantages and disadvantages of recruiting at byu so the advantages is that yes if somebody is lds and and we have a ton a ton of talent in the state of utah if you go back and look at you know the states that produce the the most successful distance recruits utah is is very high so Right there, that's great. That helps with recruiting. That's a plus. The disadvantages is you have to get people, you have to get your recruits to look past this label 
of BYU, oh, that's a church school. Like, if you can look at our team culture and our sisterhood, I guarantee you every mom and dad would want to send their daughter to BYU. I mean, it's such a safe and great place. But then what we're doing with just women's distance, I think there's a draw. There's a big draw here. Now, we're not going to, everyone isn't going to fit here. This culture doesn't work for everyone. And I understand that. So that might be a disadvantage as we might miss out on some kids. There might be kids here that want to go out of state. I lost a big recruit this last year because she wanted to go, you know, she's going to UNC and that, that's okay. It's not for everyone. I want people here that want to be here. And I don't want people to come by default because this is BYU and this is their parents' dream school. Like that's not, that's not what I want. I want women in this program that are excited and grateful and, and they want to be the best. And that's why they come here. So I think, yeah, definitely there's pros and cons just like there are with every other program in the country, but our, our fit is, is not going to be for everyone, but we're going to get the right kids in and we're going to do good things with, with those right kids. So I, I don't really pay attention to the pros and cons. I'm going to recruit a kid. If it looks like she fits, whether she's LDS or not, I'm going to continue to recruit her. And we haven't had a ton of kids that aren't LDS, but we had a couple this year. I assume that we'll have, we have another one coming next year. I think it's going to open up doors for more and more people as they understand what we're doing here. But you have to look past the label and the stereotypes. A team is what you make it. A culture is what you make it. It's a big tent here. I think I bring something to this culture as a non-LDS woman that, that maybe someone of the faith wouldn't. And so I think it's, there's advantages to, to bringing the best of the best here, regardless of their faith. I'm curious, do you, but do you, do do any of your athletes run on Sundays? No, I've never gags. We never ran on Sunday. So I grew up coaching all of my athletes at Stanislaus for a decade, never ran on Sundays. That's for me, it's always been a day of rest. So it, it, my training is always written for Sundays being off. So it worked out. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had to adapt it. That's pretty easy. If you're just always used to that, it's pretty much pretty normal. You took over the women's team in 2016 and, you know, immediately started having results and you get them on the podium within three years, you win a national title within four years. What, and one of the big things I've been impressed by watching you guys is just the, that culture you talked about the empowerment BYU run for her that, you know, that you get the tattoos on the back of the backs. Those are temporary tattoos. Am I right? Yeah, those are temporary. Okay, because I saw him, I was like, I'm not totally sure. Because so I think I told me Courtney Wayman after her 3K victory, and she's like, Yeah, I got this tattooed on my back. And I was like, oh, I I didn't know if it, I couldn't tell. Sorry, right, temporary tattoos. But like, when you take over the job, what is the first thing you do to sort of start establish that culture you're trying to build? From day one, it was really clear, and and I think that's the time that you can do it, right? It's Sometimes we think that winning should precede the culture. Like, oh, if we win, then we'll get a really good team culture. And that, that is not necessarily the case. I think the culture always has to precede the winning. And so in year one, I was fortunate. I came from a program where I had established a good culture. And so a lot of these same traditions we did at Stanislaus, like the black dresses before the cross country me just different things being tailor-made right having the hashtag tailor-made that was something we did at Stanislaus and those kids actually came up with it so there were all these things that 
I knew work, the dinners, the indoor nationals dinner and the outdoor dinners that we did where I decorated an entire wall and put all their pictures up. I did that at Stanislaus. And so a lot of those things were just unique to what I had already done. And I, I knew that it worked and, and more importantly, not just working in performances, but it enhanced their experience. And I think that's important. Like you have to go away with memories. And so we do a lot of, we have a lot of traditions. Like it, it's, it's actually overwhelming when I sit and make a list of all the things that we do in a year, but I think they're all important. So we started that in year one, you know, and I think we just kept it going, but the biggest part was creating a sisterhood. This was my first opportunity. I've always coached men and women before I got to BYU. So when I got to BYU, I only coached one gentleman who I brought over with me from Stanislaus, Abraham Alvarado, who is now running professionally for Atlanta track club, but, but he was kind of separate and I would always train him just separate from the women. But, but the women was like, let's create this sisterhood. Let's, let's create empowered women. Let's show strength. Let's build confidence. Right. When I met with the individuals in the very first two weeks of, of my time here at BYU, that was one thing that I noticed. We weren't lacking talent. We were lacking confidence. And so how can I do that? And, and that was, that was where it was like, Oh, I write cards that talk about me believing in them all the time. And I just little by little, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't, we woke up the next week and everybody was confident and strong and empowered. That's just not how it works. But little by little, I was able to show them how I believe in them. And then they were starting to see their performances pick up. And I think it was easy. Erica Burke was my first all American here in my first cross country season. And I had Shay Collinsworth and those two women showed everyone else that if they can do it, then anyone can do it. And they, they, they started this legacy and I'm just building off of that. So it took buy-in from the team, but, but really just creating a, a sisterhood. And I, I was lucky that I was able to do that here. We had something similar to that at Stanislaus, but now that I'm only coaching women and my focus is on that, I can take even a bigger role of, of just being a source of empowerment. Did you encounter any pushback at all or anyone was like uh, maybe reluctant to buy in or was it pretty universal right away? I'll be honest with you. I think there were a couple of individuals that were like, seriously, we all have to wear black dresses. Why does it all look the same? Or, you know, just a little bit there, one or two. But overall, no, I think they were excited. I, I came into a program where there had been a coach that was here that was successful early on. But in the last few years before I got here, I, I don't know what the vibe was on the team because I wasn't here. So I can't speak for that, but I think I just brought a different level of excitement, something new. And, and so most people got behind it, and especially I had a big freshman class that year. So we, we were all freshmen together and they were just excited. Like, Oh, we get to wear, you know, this Y tattoo here and we're going to paint our nails white. I mean, we have so many things that we do for, for national championships and for different races, that, that they were excited about it. And it gave, it gives you something else to focus on outside of the performance itself. You get to these big meets. And if you're sitting in your hotel room for three days and all you're thinking about as an athlete is putting on that uniform and racing, it's overwhelming. That is daunting. But if you're with your team and you're all going and getting your nails done and you're doing these, you know, extravagant dinners and you're all dressing up for, it just takes your mind off of, that, that big race. And, and it gives you something else to focus on. And it also creates memories that last much longer than what the race does. So I think that those were things that I knew from before and we brought them here at BYU. And 
I think it's been really successful. I will never change a thing. We will always do white nails at nationals. We will always do black dresses for cross country. I mean, there's just things that we, we will always continue to do because it's, it's who we are and it's consistent and they expect it. Well, it's interesting. So speaking of dressing up, watching the NCAA track meet on Friday and Saturday, you, you were very easy to identify on the broadcast because there was a woman by the finish line with black high heel boots, I think a Gucci belt. I'm not really a fashionista, but you know, so I don't, I think you might've been the only coach dressed that way. I'm curious, like why, why decide to dress like that instead of like, you know, the typical coach's attire of like a sweatshirt or a pullover or something. Yeah. I love fashion, right? I love, and majority of Monday through Friday as a track coach, I wear BYU clothes and tights and running shoes. And that's just what, it's what we do. It's who we are, but I love to dress up. And I also think, yeah, I love fashion. I'll just say that. And, and I think my women love it. And every time they walk down, they're like, Whoa, coach. So it's just kind of a confidence and it's a fun thing. And I don't necessarily always feel that way inside. I was vulnerable with them in this team meeting that we just had like, Hey guys, I know from the outside, I look like I'm totally calm and super confident, but you know, you always have your 10% of your moments where you're like, ah, did I do everything right? But no, I just love fashion. And, and now it's, obviously expected because people people have noticed and and are making comments about it but i enjoy i enjoy more than just khakis running shoes and a polo that that's not my style for track meet well also i noticed the sunglasses because you were wearing them on monday but then also i went back i was re-watching the interview we did with you off the NCAA cross in 2019 in Terre Haute that day it was pouring rain it was like cloudy overcast and you still had the sunglasses on then is that a tradition as well yeah, the aviators are, are a Coach Taylor tradition, and you just have to stick with traditions. And, and I know I do get made fun of, I'm sure, especially because some of that is probably expected. But no, that's just kind of part of, part of my coaching look. Well, I, yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was cool. I just was curious. I like, Sorry, what? Oh, I said I would wear the sunglasses. The aviators, I would wear those indoors if I could. But I, you got to draw the line somewhere. Got to draw the line. Well, that's what I was curious about watching the meet Terre Haute last year. Like, was it challenging to follow the meet in the rain, you know, and with sort of the overcast skies through the aviators? No, it was fine. It just gives it a little different tint, but, but no, it's great. And usually in cross country, you can, you know, it's going to be good weather. And so usually, and it's same thing with track season. So the sunglasses actually help you not squint, but that day there was rain And I know after that interview that I did where I did have the sunglasses on, but sometimes they also help cover emotions. You know, I was getting teared up this year when ESPN was interviewing me and the sunglasses kind of saved that, saved the the showing of the tears. So, but really they're just a look. And sometimes I panic if I don't have them because I need them to coach. Mm -hmm. It's like my stopwatch. You got to have the stopwatch and the sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. So Reading the flow track, they wrote, Kevin Sully wrote a great story on you last, I think off the cross country last year. And one of the things he mentioned was you were offered the distance coach job, the women's distance coach job at Oregon in 2018. And then you were offered the director job at Stanford in the summer of 2019. And you turned them both down to stay at BYU. And one of the reasons you mentioned why was Gags told you not to take those jobs. So I'm curious, why did you turn them down and what did gags sort of what did he tell you about uh those decisions yeah I I mean it was more than just gags obviously having conversation with my family and 
my my two boys who are nine and 11 are thriving here in Utah. Originally, when we first got here, my concern was the lack of diversity. And I really am used to being in an environment where there is a ton of diversity. And so that was a little bit of a concern. But as we've lived here now for several years, and they they're in their sporting events, and, and they love it. They love being here. We're so ingrained in the BYU sporting atmosphere, not just with my own sport, but we're at basketball games and football games. I mean, this is just a very inviting and community feel, very family feel for us in this athletic department, which is not going to be the case at a lot of, I have a great relationship with all three of our ADs. And, and so I think all of those I took into consideration, but the biggest part is I, I don't know what I'm able to do with the women here it's pretty special. And, and I'm not sure if it would be well received like that anywhere else. Stanford was always a dream job for me. I lived there for three years when, when I was with Gags and it holds so many good memories, so many good memories. I was living my best life at, at the age of, you know, 25 to 27, 28 when I was living there. And so I had to, I had to see that one through for, for the dream, right? You got to follow the dream. But as I, as I went through that process, I realized that the dream had changed and it was no longer the same. And simultaneously just realizing how grateful I am for everything I get here in BYU. I, I just don't think there's a place like it. And I'm able to do some incredible things with these women who I've, who I've grown to love. They're more than athletes to me. And, and I don't know, I, I'm sure there would be something similar to this if I coached elsewhere, but I don't see it. And so this is where, this is where I found my home and it's a niche, you know, I have, I have a neat opportunity to do something with these women and, and I think that's what you're seeing. I, I, that last weekend was was about relationships. It, it was about performances too, but it was more about relationships. So, so yeah, I just felt like this was the place that I I need to be. Do you feel like that's going to be like long term? Like, would you consider? Would you do you have designs on becoming a director somewhere at some point? Because from what I understand, at BYU to be like sort of the director of the program, you actually have to be LDS for that. That is correct right now. I don't know if that will continue to stay as a rule. Hopefully I can impress them enough to maybe revisit that. But I would be cheating myself if I, I would not be being honest with you if I said that I don't want to be a director. I came here as a director and I, I enjoyed having that, just that, that role on a team. Right now I'm, I'm an associate director and I feel like I have a very similar role. So I'm I'm content with where I'm at. I, I can't predict the future, but I'm very happy here. And I, you know, I've gotten some text messages over the last couple of days, just people inquiring about what the next move is. And, and, and the next move is Provo. Like I, I love, you have to be here to really experience how I'm treated and how they value me. And and that's not the case everywhere. And I'm, I'm well aware of that. But beyond just how they treat and value me is, is the impact I'm able to have on these women. It goes so far beyond the sport. And, and that, that's meaningful to me. I'm able to collect some, some really good accolades while I'm doing that. So I think I can, I think I can continue to, to reload this, this powerhouse here and, and continue to make, make some waves uh, in the NCAA as, as, as the women's coach here at BYU. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, we're talking now it's Thursday afternoon and the cross country race was on Monday. So you had a couple days, like, how did you, I was surprised actually you, you were willing to talk like so soon after the race. I thought you'd be taking like a week off. You'd be going on vacation or something with 
the season you've been through and the whole championship, the grind, like, did you have time to relax? Have you spent these last couple of days since coming back from Stillwater? Yeah. The last seven days before the cross country meet, I think I slept probably three hours on average per night between, you know, finishing up the cards and setting up the night before meeting and just getting all of that, writing the talks of what I'm going to say, just, just all of it. And, and just being nervous. Like, it's not like I walked into, you know, the, the meet just thinking that everything's going to go great. And, you know, there were some nerves involved from, from a coaching standpoint, but I don't, I've been rejuvenated since I've been back home. We had a huge welcome party. First of all, when our bus came at noon on Tuesday and that was great. I mean, our football coaches out here dancing around women's volleyball team was out here and pretty much the entire athletic department. We had like billboards all along the, the highway with our teams on them with digital billboards already put up to welcome us. It was, it was a great welcome. And, and I took that afternoon to, to kind of just hang out with my family and just really just sit and do nothing mostly spent a couple hours responding to all the text messages of people congratulating me from way back when. And, and then yesterday I, yeah, I, I just kind of took the dogs for a walk and just soaked it all in, but I wanted to meet with my team today and we've created a fun little cross training room that I've been working on for just women's distance. We had a donor donate some money. So I was working on, on that. We've got a bunch of bikes and some ellipticals and treadmills and painted the walls blue and the reveal happened today. So it was just perfect timing where we met as a team. We ate acai cause that's our thing at, at BYU. We, we love the acai bowl. Wherever we go, we will find a place. So I ordered acai for everyone. And we just talked about the experiences from me as a coach. I talked about like all the crazy things I went through and some of the silly things that, that I did. And then I had the indoor track team talk about their thoughts and I had our locker room talk we call our locker room the ladies who don't travel they're the ladies who are back home whether they're injured or they just haven't made the squad yet we call them our locker room so they talked about how proud they were and what it was like for them to watch both performances and then I had our cross-country team get up and talk about just what they were going through and and I think yeah we needed to do that this week because Monday we start practice again I'll probably take tomorrow off but I, I feel, I think a national championship kind of rejuvenates you in itself. You don't come home super exhausted, but I'm pretty excited. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm planning a party right now, a national championship party for, for all of our titles. We're going to have like a golden party. It's going to be very extra, but that'll be right before our first outdoor meet. So I'm going to work on that. And yeah, I don't feel like I need to take, I want to spend time with my boys and, and they've watched the meet so many times they can mimic so many of the runners in the finish line. And, you know, that finish line was, there was a lot of carnage that happened in that last hundred meters. So my nine-year-old is really good at imitating runners from our own team, as well as runners from other teams and what they looked like um, that last hundred meters. So we've watched the races. I wanted to watch it with my boys so they could give me their commentary of what they were feeling when, when the race was going on. But, but other than that, I, I don't feel like I need to take a vacation. I, I'll take a couple of days this weekend to just sit at home and, and do nothing and maybe unpack the suitcase finally. But, but I did want to I did want to recap with the team and just kind of get everyone together, just a private, private moment for just us. Cause we saw everyone when all of, you know, BYU was welcoming us, but I, I wanted to do something just with our team and then do the reveal of our new cross training room. That is going to be really fun for us to be able to use. So I'm back in the office. Yeah, yeah, I can see that right now. Well, Dilji, this was awesome. I really enjoyed talking to you again to learn some of your backstory about the culture you created, your time under gags. This was great. I just, you know, and congrats again. Like, 
I think we said this in our recap, but this was an all-time coaching achievement and an all-time performance from your women, two different groups. I mean, so impressive. We just thanks, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am, I am very proud of women who have trusted me and have believed in the process and have accomplished some huge things. And they've created a legacy and paved the way for, for this younger group that's going to come in. And I think, you know, it's all about it's all about someone doing it before you to show you that you can also do it. So they've, they've changed the landscape of what goals are going to look like and what dreams are going to look like for future BYU Cougars. So um, really indebted to, to these group of women. And I will have this weekend embedded in my heart and in my mind for, for the rest of my coaching career. It was a good one.